0: Hello and welcome to Stock Talk, a podcast series which brings together livestock specialists, vets and farmers to give you the tools you need to improve your business and embrace the future. Stock Talk is presented by myself, Robert Ramsey, and produced by Kirsten Blackwood as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. So we're joined today by a man who doesn't really need much of an introduction, certainly in most of Lanarkshire and quite a chunk of Ayrshire. Um, we're joined by michael shannon so michael um how are things going today
1: hello yeah no all pretty good um sun's shining here in lanarkshire it's a beautiful day um we've had quite a wee dry spell so all's good um cattle all seem to be doing well outside on their natural vegetation so yeah things are pretty good
0: Cool. Positive farming stories. We like happy people. It's good. Now, for the people who don't know Michael Shannon, and I'm confident that people who do know Michael Shannon haven't switched off at this stage, I'm confident that we'll, we'll retain our listeners um, a good guest to have. So can you tell us a wee bit about yourself? So wh- where are you from? How did you get to where you are? And what do you do would be the kind of questions.
1: All right. So um, as you can tell by the accent, not originally from these parts, originally from County Down in Northern Ireland. Um left agricultural college, no farm, uh, come from a family of doctors, so there's no farm. So always thought I would get a job in agriculture doing something, and I, preferably it was actually going to be to milk cows, that was my passion. Um, but uh, got a job, the first job I applied for was a training manager with a seed company, grass seed company, uh, the company that's now known as Germinal. Uh, seeds and uh, they started work with them in Banbridge in Northern Ireland and a few months after starting with them, a job came up in Scotland, I thought it was a good career move, thought maybe a couple of years in Scotland, back to Northern Ireland at the head office and you never know where things would take me and that was uh, 36 uh, 36 years ago, so stuck here ever since. Spent a long time in the seed industry, wholesale seed industry, supplying all the merchants, et cetera, and Scotland, mainly in Scotland, but covered a bit of Northern England as well. And uh, that gave me a great um, experience. You never think that that those sort of jobs, it wasn't farming, but a fantastic experience. We got to see so much of the world, been to New Zealand a few times with the company to see different systems. And uh, finally in 1996 was able to buy my own, and lived in Edinburgh to start with, and then 1996 was able to buy my own farm, Thank Thangertman Camp, which I'm on, talking to you from now. Um, I was able to buy it. Um, continued to work up until 2007, so doing both farming and uh, working in the seed trade. And uh, then in 2007, Took the plunge and decided to go full-time farming um, and at that time set up Damn Delicious, which was uh, set up originally as a, an online meat business, selling basically selling meat from the farm. And that's always our primary goal is to sell meat from the farm. Um, but uh, um, we then were able to buy a local shop, a local butcher shop. And we expanded into that, and then sit, we were there for five years, and then moved back out to the farm. And the the business has basically grown at the farm. Um, we built a small shop at the farm, and then just this year, in July, we opened a much bigger premises, much bigger processing facility, which has allowed us to do a lot more. You know, there's sort of three uh, areas of the business we're trying to grow. is our we do an awful lot of private kills. Uh, so packing for other farmers and other farm shops as well, uh, who have their own beef but or their own meat, uh, could be anything. Could be pigs. We've done. We do pigs. We do goats. We do sheep. We do cattle, um, and we pack that for them and label it for them uh, with their own branding, um, and they then can sell that on. And then uh, as well as that, in the uh, when we started, Damn Delicious. We also branched off into turkeys as well. So we do Christmas turkeys. Christmas turkeys has now become quite a big part of the business um, and a very enjoyable part of the business because we take the turkeys the whole way from start to finish. So they arrive here at six weeks old and we take them the whole way through to slaughter. We slaughter on farm, dress them. And, and the new shop facility was set up, you know, there's a lot of bits have been designed into that to be able to cope with the Christmas rush and the Christmas turkeys, et cetera.
0: Yeah, an amazing story. Um, we had Paddy Jack on a, a few months ago doing a, a forage crop podcast. So Pad, Paddy's story is very similar to your story. So Paddy was a small farm in Northern Ireland, moved across to do his degree, Probably found out that Scotland's better than Northern Ireland. He stayed here, pursued his whole career. The bit he didn't do was...
1: I, I have to say, actually, in, in uh, 1985, when I moved across here, and Paddy probably was about a similar sort of time. I think he was maybe slightly later, because uh, he's younger than me. Uh, but uh, when um, uh, both of us would have moved across here in the 80s, Scotland would have certainly been a much more attractive option than living in Northern Ireland in the state that it was in at that time. But I, I, but I'm like, Patty, Paddy, uh, you know, Paddy was fellow Northern Irishman, fellow Northern Irishman doing a similar job to me. You know, he was in the wholesale side. I was no at that time. He was on the retail side, Um, but I was on the wholesale side, and uh, um, then we became like we would have been. Uh, we would have been direct opposition because we were both fighting for the same market, so we weren't um, at the time. However, in saying that, uh, I'm quite friendly with Paddy, so he's quite a good guy. So.
0: Good. I didn't bring up some horrible
1: past <laughs> at all. Past the wholesale seat industry was like that. Most everybody was very courteous. We were all out there. We were all trying to make our way in the world. Um, but it's a very... You know, the grass seed industry was full of it's very much gentlemanly trade. Like a lot of business was done. I didn't play golf, but my old boss used to play golf, and a lot of the business that Andrew used to do was done on the golf course. Like it was very much that type of thing. That's how that industry worked. It was on the golf course. These guys did all their business. It was.
0: Such a tough life, like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then you did what we're all doing now—is spinning plates and farmed and worked at the same time. So it's it's interesting. I think when we do the likes of that, we land up with quite often a simple production system. You, know, you 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 have to streamline things and cut the hassle out of things to make things more straightforward to allow you to go to your work. And I think is that fair to say that's reflected in your current system as well. That.
1: Yeah, o- probably. O- probably. O- like like yeah. um you know, the one thing that working in the seed industry did and you know I held some relatively senior positions within the seed industry and it gave me a fantastic education and a fantastic business knowledge. Um I'm not saying I, I um use my business knowledge particularly well at times, but it did give me a great grounding and a great education in how a, you know, I operate uh, this this is this is a business. I'm not, you know. I love to farm. I want to farm, but at the end of the day, I have debts that have to be funded. Um, I have a, a family of eight children that need to be funded and a wife, um, and we have a certain lifestyle. And we're doing this because we need to earn money and we want to um, have a, a nice lifestyle. And if I could leave, leave this planet. Um, being slightly worth slightly more than when I arrived in this planet and give the kids a bit of a start, then I think that's all good. But it is very much a case of um, you know, it's a business, both both operations, both the farm and the shop need to run as businesses need to make their profits. Um, and like we operate, the farm operates a system which is very low cost. Um, you know this. This came actually from the seed industry. We, uh, what had happened basically was that the first time grain prices had sort of rocketed uh, in the nineties. Um, we were sitting looking. You know, none of the systems added up. It didn't. None of it stacked up at all. And uh, we were looking at the sales of brassicas, and we were the Mars um, Castle Keel is one of our varieties. And we're looking at the sales of Mars Gastro Kale are going through the roof in New Zealand. The area of brassicas was rocketing in New Zealand. Why was it rocketing in New Zealand? And it was basically they were using it as a low-cost system. So we were, there were three of us sent out there to have a look at this, uh, which we did. And we went out to New Zealand and um, saw what was happening in New Zealand, the low-cost systems, and then we came back and um, I ended up in charge of that sort of Nebraska side. And we ended up um, then taking what well, the idea was to take the educators out to educate the educators about low-cost systems. And all it was driven purely by cost. Now, there are fantastic environmental benefits from the whole outwintering system. But at that time, it was driven about driving down winter costs and trying to get them under control. So that's where we started. So during one of the trips to New Zealand, um, well, it was in New Zealand three or four times. And uh, two of the trips were during the winter time. We were looking at low-cost wintering systems. You know, the bales being positioned in the field, I saw that in New Zealand, and then come back here and we set up the trial with Basil Lomond and Gavin Hill at the bush uh, to sort of demonstrate outwintering and what could be done. Um, And... But then, but then we went back out. And we went to look at summertime. We went to look at what how they dealt with summer, how they dealt with droughts, and how they did, dealt with different things. But I sort of had a, I sort of like nearly like had an epiphany um, while in New Zealand on that summer trip, which was I saw beef cattle being grazed in paddocks on daily shifts doing these fantastic live weight gains. You know, they're doing live weight gains of sort of, the guys were claiming two to three kilos. And at that time, my farm, you know, I had a good job. I was earning a good wage. And every September when my accounts would go into the accountants, what would happen was I'd get a check back from the tax man because my employment, I was paying PAYE, and on the farm, I was losing money. So therefore, we were able to claim some of the PAYE tax back because we'd lost so much money on the farm. Well, if you're going to run a sustainable business, constantly losing money every single year in life doesn't bode well for the longevity of your business. So, um, so in New Zealand, there were two things I saw in New Zealand was one, the low cost outwintering, because I was buying grain and buying feeding into fat and cattle here. Um, and the second thing was the rotational grazing of beef cattle, which was which was just such a just such a no-brainer, really. It just was just such a no-brainer. But yet none of us were doing it. We're all watching the dairy farmers doing it, but the beef farmers just go, oh look at those boys over there moving electric fences. Um, I'm sitting in the house at nine o'clock and drinking tea and having bacon rolls. Um, whereas financially it didn't stack up. And that really was the biggest, rele- biggest change star like I came home and completely threw the book away and said, right, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and it then gave us, because that then gave us the extra message, because the other thing that, that one of the things grass-fed, and we don't make enough of this in this country, grass-fed lamb, grass-fed beef, um, you know, there's fantastic health benefits to that to the population. You know, high in omega threes, which reduces heart disease, which can reduce cancer. So there's fantastic benefits as a as a nation that we could have by eating grass fed beef um, <clears throat> or grass fed meat, I should say.
0: There's also I think I think in there, Michael, there's a thing about we we, we talk about vegans, we talk about you know plant based diets, and we, that, they're in the polar opposite of the world that we're in are we producing in but we have to look to those guys and think well what what is their point what is what is their argument and part of that argument or discussion is that cattle eat a lot of stuff that people could eat and and i i, I can't compete with that
1: i sort of no well i sort of agree with that but I, I don't really i think veganism or vegetarianism is a life choice you know some people do it because they don't like meat some people do do it because they don't like the thought of animals being treated, being used for some other purpose, um, and some people do it because they think it has an environmental. Um, it, it it. 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 They're saving the planet by not eating meat, and and I and I personally, I think if they want to be a vegan or want to be a vegetarian, want to go to vegeta- vegetarianism, then I don't have a problem with that. What I do have a problem with is is if they're making those decisions based on spurious results or spurious information, that's the issue. So, for example, if you think you're saving the planet by not eating meat, I think you're kidding yourself because majority of the information that these people are using are from... and. Let's face it, within farming, there are those of us within farming who don't like certain ways certain farming practices go. So I don't like the thought of an animal in a feedlot um, in America or wherever it is where it's just standing there all day and all it does, its only purpose in life, is to eat as much as it can, as quickly as it can, and get as fat as it can. Um, I was in a feedlot in New Zealand, um, and they were producing beef for the Japanese market, and the drivers were on bonuses. These animals were. The, we saw the pen of the cattle that were. I can't remember many thousand cattle were in this feedlot, but the the whole purpose was they were looking for these animals with a huge amount of fat. It's not marbling. It's nearly white. The meat is nearly white because there's so much fat in it. That's what the Japanese market want. How, very high end, high high profit. Um, and the cattle are so fat that they can hardly walk, and the drivers were on bonuses. To get the animals transported from the feedlot to the abattoir without having a heart attack. So if they could get the whole lorry load there with none of the animals having a heart attack, they get a bonus. Now, for me as a farmer, I find that completely and utterly repulsive, and I can sort of get where people come from with that angle and saying, but but that doesn't mean that eating. So if animals are reared in a in a high welfare, you know, we're all farm assured in this country. We all have very high welfare standards. Um, and, and we also have, in my opinion, have a duty. If I've got food-producing land that can produce reasonable quantities of food for, to feed the nation, then I have a moral responsibility to use that land and to produce food. That is my moral responsibility because there are, we are so lucky. This is a new thing in our house. We've started this thing. I was describing everything as so lucky. We're so lucky. I'm so lucky to have a job, so lucky to have our house over my head. I'm so lucky that I can produce food here on my farm because there are huge rafts now of the world, probably because of, of, of climate change, deserts where nobody can produce any food. So what we're doing here, we're going to plant out some prime agricultural land into trees so that we tick a box. We're 2% of the output of um, dangerous gases. We're 2%. 2 In the world, we're 2%. So if we make a change, so if couple of farms around here, a few hundred acres get planted out in trees. What difference does that actually make to the planet? Absolutely, so no. But what it does do is it takes prime agricultural land out of food production. And then we then, so we're going to get to a point then where we can't produce enough food in this country. We have to import it. So where do we import it from? We import it from all the countries that are felling trees and felling forests to produce more meat or produce more protein. And we end up in this scenario where we're importing it, where the welfare standards, we don't know what they are. We don't know what environmental damage those countries are doing to produce this meat. But as far as we're concerned, and all we've done is we have export our conscience. And I, I hate it, I hate it, I think it's, I think it's despicable and I think it's immoral um, for us not to produce food when we can produce, you know, at the end of the day, um, I'm a farmer. I produce food. The only reason you can sit in an office and do your job is because there's a guy out there producing the food that you can go to the supermarket or go to the butchers. Because you would always go to the butchers. You would not go to the supermarket, but you would go to the butchers to buy the food. And that's the big thing. You know, we're, we were all hunters and gatherers. If we went back, I don't know how many hundreds of years we need to go back or thousands of years but everybody had to produce so your family you would have to go out and kill or grow the food that you eat and you can only do that you can only have majority of people you can only have a lawyer because some other buggers doing the hunting and gathering for them mm-hmm. Anyway, I I seen, I'm rant there sorry
0: it was a good rant though and i can i can <laughs> i, I I'm, I'm on the same page the there was a the U.S. Department of the head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture did that was a it's actually quite an old video now, but he's giving evidence to, to some political environment anyway, yeah. and he's making the point that half a percent of the U.S. population are farmers, yeah. and that means that ninety nine ninety nine and a half percent don't need to be. Yeah, but he's also making the point that the vote, the farming vote, is only half a percent. So you know, we've almost, we, aye, we've created this. But is this, is this,
1: it's, it's our politicians seem to believe that, the, you know, we just, we export, you know, by, they've sort of got set themselves these challenges of uh, being net zero by a certain point. Um, I don't look at actually, because I thought coming out of COVID, we'd all learnt something. We'd all learnt what... It's all about about food security, um, about, you know, we're an island nation. Uh, we could protect ourselves so well. And, and I thought we'd learn something, but it seems to be, a, what, a year or so later? And everybody's just forgotten that. And nobody actually understands that, you know, we need, to, at the end of the day, like, no matter what industry you're in, I look at different industries and always think to myself, as well, I'm in the food industry. So technically, everybody has to eat and everybody has to drink. So as an industry, I'm pretty safe because no matter what happens, everybody has to eat and everybody has to drink. So there has to be somebody somewhere. But the problem is if we export or we we import all our food and we export our conscience and we just say, well, look at us, we've planted Britain out in trees, Um, you know, and we're now become, you know, a pimple on the lung of the world. We haven't gained anything, and all we've done is we've got somewhere else. And I just think, and the other thing that really worries me about that is if we're in that food that was being produced in those countries at this moment in time is being imported to those poorer nations, and if we then say, right, well, we're going into that market, we're going to buy that, we're rich. So we can outbid the poor countries. And the poor countries then end up... So there's going to be more starvation in the poor countries because us, the rich nations, have said, now we're going to plant all our nice prime land out in trees and we're going to go and buy all the food out of the food world market up the prices so the poor starve. So it's back to the same thing again as the rich. We become obnoxiously
0: just cruel to our fellow man and the poor people starve. So that is exactly... My vegan point from a while ago um, is exactly what I mean. So I think we've got in Scotland a tremendous resource when it comes to, or an asset in our ability to grow and graze grass and forage crops. You know we've got uh, lots of high high quality land that's fit to produce high quality red meat. And my view, anyway, is the future of red meat production here is not, it's not going to be totally forage based. It's not going to be, you know, there's always a, a need for inputs to beef systems, but we've got a bright future, I think, into that more natural focused, high output, but grazed system. You know, there's, there's in, that, in that world, when the world's got an increasing population, we've got an increased demand for everything and a reduced area to grow it on and produce it in due to, deserts, new forests, a uh, housing developments, all the conflicting production, or the, the things that conflict with production. We have, as farmers, a right, I think we've got a really bright future in spite of what we hear in the media. And, and we do have to change the way we do it. We do, do to have to adapt and overcome policy and climate challenges. But. but but I think also Robert we,
1: we need to also we need to also recognize our own failings as an industry. Yeah. You know, as a, as an industry, we do have we have some very skilled people within our industry. Um, we also a lot of the time we're kidding ourselves that we're running really efficient businesses because we're not, you know, there's lots of farms out there. And we need to be as efficient, you know, we need to be making as much as many efficiencies in our energy use, and um, how we produce things, etc. So we reduce our carbon footprint too. So I think it's a it's it's an all encompassing. But we can't we can't sort of say like we are safe because we're in the food industry. We're only safe in the food. And the pig industry is a fantastic example. They were on their knees. They have driven for efficiencies within their industry, um, and they have now made their industry like they're they're lean, they're slick. If you talk to anybody in the pig industry, they know all their figures, they know their live weight gains, they know everything down to the, the slightest detail. And you can only manage what you measure. So if you don't manage it properly, you can't measure. So if you don't measure it, you don't know what you're managing. And this is one of the things I think we need to, you know, we need to accept I, yeah I have a, an opinion on where we should farm in this country and what different land types you know um I, I don't believe like growing cereals in certain areas of Scotland is probably folly realistically you know if you take how many times they have either crop failures don't get the straw baled or the weathers against them for harvest um you know but the east coast we should be but but likewise, on the East Coast, if the East Coast had more uh, livestock on it, you would have a much more balanced approach to have a much more, like, uh, have a, a good old-fashioned... Well, but it's counted as old-fashioned, but really, no, it's not called old-fashioned now. It's called... What's, it, what's the word we're looking for? Regenerative, regenerative farming? Regenerative, I think. Yeah, we, we give it a new tag. But it's just... It's, it's, it's a rotation, a good rotation, looking after the land that looks after us. You know, these places in England... Where the soils are dead because it's just been monocropped for the last however many years, centuries, whatever, and the land's dead. Like, you know, we don't have anything like that in Scotland, and we need to make sure that we stay like that.
0: The, I'm speaking at the Rare Breed Survival Trust conference in March, and my topic is basically what, what does the farm of 2040 look like? And what's becoming quite clear is the farm of 2040 my to my mind anyway looks a lot like the farm of 1940 with scale and with technology so as you Irish. say we need to measure and monitor we need to you know get data and it's going to be very data driven but the very specialist business at the moment it isn't looking particularly good going forward and actually having more of that mixed farm and we're not going to have six hens and 10 cows in the buyer and you know it's going to need to be on on a scale and and perhaps cooperation with people other people bringing in different if you need a sheep enterprise on your arable farm probably better to outsource that to a young enthusiastic person that's better at it than you're going to be and you focus on the arable but you get the benefit of that coming in so i think there's so much i'm so excited about the future it makes it more frustrating when we hear the negative stuff I'm I'm also conscious that we've had a really good semi-political informative rant (laughs) (laughs) in this podcast so that's that's good that's that's encouraged but what we really want to talk about is is the turkey and the the direct selling element of your business so what what we I'm seeing quite a lot of is a lot of farmers who've fallen into or a lot of Scottish agriculture is focused on producing global commodities. And in a global environment, we're not that competitive, high cost structures, and blah, blah, blah. That's not to say we've, we all need to, to do it differently, but those who are doing it differently and are telling a story, have a good story to tell and tell it in a good way, engage with their consumer and are pretty close to their consumer, are generally performing are doing reasonably well it's not for everybody but that's why we got you on today was really to think about that the butchery story and we know you've invested heavily in, in the new butchery but particularly that once a year enterprise the, the turkey story which historically was on many farms on a, on a very small scale and we're seeing it now trickling back into there's quite a few people who are doing You know 100 200 turkeys just as as a separate um cash boost to the business so can you explain how you got into it and what what it roughly looks like now yeah
1: um i don't actually know why i got into it i I really i couldn't answer that question i entered the first year i got 30 birds and I don't know why. I think it was the time when Gordon Ramsay was doing the thing with Paul Kelly on his F-word program, and he was plucking turkeys. And I thought, well, oh, that'd be quite good. And we we're trying to do the meat, and it was a good. We business that sort of fitted nicely with the business. Um, and I decided I wanted to do something. You know, it's like anything else. You can, you have to try and set up what your USP is, what your unique selling point is, what makes you a little bit different. And uh, so we decided to do the turkeys. The turkeys has actually become, so from we started doing sort of like 30 birds, has become quite a big business. It's also become, um, it's a lot more regulated now than it used to be. Uh, So, for example, um, used to be able to rear 300 birds and not, you could just work away with them, no problem yourself. Um now you have to go and get a license to kill the birds, even though you kill like if you kill twenty or you kill thirty or you kill three hundred, you have to go and get a license to kill them on your own farm, even though they're from yourself. Um so there's a lot more regulation involved now. But um we I started doing it um started doing it because decided there was a bit of a market, decided I could make a few quid from it, um and we've grown it you know, every year we've sort of just added numbers, not huge numbers. I think the direct selling side of things, you know, people need to be very aware of that it was very in vogue. What, 10, 20 years ago, everybody was setting up these wee co-ops which people were all getting together and guys selling um, their own lamb or their own beef or and then people doing turkeys, etc. You have to be willing to take a fair bit of knocks with it. Um, you're dealing with the general public. So it is really not for everyone. Please, do anybody sort of thinking about it, don't go into it faint-hearted um, because it will be difficult at times um, because you are dealing with uh, the general public who are used to buying things in the supermarket that all come uniform and exactly the same. You're on a farm, you know, with the turkeys. You produce 300 turkeys. You get 300 different birds um so you know they're not going to all be exactly uniform the whole way through so you're you're gonna and you're gonna have to deal with that but also as well as that if you're if you're open enough with your customer at the start and said look this is what i'm producing um i hope to produce you know 95 percent of them are going to be the target weights but there's going to be some of them and there's going to be variation and you're going to have to live for that a wee bit if you want my um free-range birds that are out in the woods, wandering about all day, then there is going to be variation in them. You're going to have to accept that. Um, there's a lot of work in the birds. Um, you know, They come in here first week of September. It's a big family occasion for us. It always has been. Uh, when the turkeys arrive, the kids always get involved in coming over and uh, unload them into a shed, and then they go out from the shed after a few days and they get locked in the shed at night just to keep the fox away. Um, but it's a big family thing. The kids are there. But the kids come over for that couple of hours to, when the bird birds arrive, and then the next time the kids see the birds is probably Christmas Day when it's sitting in the middle of the <laughs> table. Um, but in between that, somebody has carried about, uh, you know, 10 tonne of feeding into them in bags. Um, somebody has lifted them all, Kill them, pluck them, dress them. Uh, we chill all our turkeys. We dry age, so we uh, we what's known as game hang our turkeys. So they're dead normally a fortnight, well ten days to a fortnight before Christmas. Um, but so so, but they they keep quite well. So our turkeys were all killed this year on the thirteenth and fourteenth of December. Um, and interestingly. Um, that was the time, that was the week this year that the temperature never went above minus thirteen in Frankerton. So uh, standing out, killing and plucking turkeys those few days was hard going, I can tell you. But we have the same guys, we've had the same guys coming now here plucking turkeys for I don't know, 10, 15 years. They come every year. It's a little bonus for them for um, Christmas. Um we're quite lucky we've got the same guys and we've we've two or three guys who come and go. So we're usually getting staff for plucking. We've invested a bit of money over the years in putting in a plucking machine, uh, which costs us a few thousand. Um, but that's been a great help because it's like anything else, you know, the issue is is staff and we've had people come and last an hour plucking turkeys and then all of a sudden they get a phone call that they've got to rush away because, you know, it's just, you know, um, it's not for everybody. We've had, we've had uh, it's not uh, gender specific, the plucking of turkeys. We've had ladies plucking turkeys, men plucking turkeys, no problem. We even had one girl who came to pluck turkeys one year and she was green the whole time she was there. And I remember thinking, oh, that poor girl; she's really struggling there with it, with it, you know, with it, the whole process of the turkeys and all this. Um, she was pregnant, and she didn't know when she was starting morning sickness. That's why she was green. <laughs> what a so so anyway, um, so but but um, we we set our price for our turkeys, so. Um, turkey the, the price of the price the cost of production of turkeys has obviously risen, like everything else. Cost of feeding has rocketed. Um, this year, the last two years we've had the added bonus of having bird flu all over the place. Uh, last year we had to close our turkeys in. There was a, a an order came down saying you had to close your turkeys in from the first of December. Um this year there was no order, so the Turkeys were able to be outside the whole way through. Um they did close down in England, but we weren't we didn't have to close down in Scotland and we luckily didn't have any cases of that. Um so well we wouldn't have had any cases because apparently if you get it you just get wiped out. Um so um as far as the sales are concerned, you know, we have the same people coming through that door every year for the turkeys. Once you sort of build up a rapport with your customers as long as you're not mucking them about as long as you're not giving them dodgy birds um you know we only sell our own birds so when it comes to the stage when we've sold out we've sold out and that's it i'd also say as well and i was talking to a guy about this recently saying you know somebody had started off and got 25 birds no i think it was maybe more than that maybe 50 birds and thought this was great you know they sold them all really quickly and they jumped immediately from 50 to 300. And this year, and that was this year, and this year they ended up really struggling. Obviously, to jump from 50 to 300 is a massive step. So, uh, you know, we started with 30 and we're moving up, but we're not up into sort of like thousands or anything like that. We're still in the hundreds. Um, and But we move up slowly, um, and I would advise strongly if anybody's thinking of doing it, you know, start small and build your way up. Don't go big because what do you do with a dressed turkey on the 20s? If you end up with 200 or 300 dressed turkeys that you haven't sold on the 26th of December, what are you going to do with them? You know, it's not like, you, you know, you end up growing taking on slightly more store lambs than normal, and you don't sell them where you thought you were going to sell them, you'd still take them to market. There's still a market somewhere for them. But with a a turkey after Christmas, the next market is probably Easter or Thanksgiving in November. So, you know, strongly advise anybody to, to build slowly, build gradually. We do most of our marketing, and the turkeys. are spent like I spend a lot of time. I spend a lot of time on Facebook and Twitter, um, and uh, we promote heavily on them. Um, but most of the turkeys gets a lot of turkeys get sold just by word of mouth. You know, we get great feedback, and somebody tells their some somebody else. But you'll also find in families. So you supply the son or the daughter with the turkey. And it's their turn every two or three years. And you think, oh well, you know, I haven't seen I haven't seen Duncan this year. He hasn't bought a turkey off me. So he's bringing Duncan up. What oh, big turkey? Huh? No. It's my brother's turn this year and he's getting the turkey from someone else. So you don't see the same customers all the time. your customers change, but you might be supplying the family but you don't see the same people all the time, but they do come back and it's a cyclical thing. So you might see them every once, every two years or once every three years. So, um, but uh, yeah, I I really enjoy the turkey thing. We had a butcher actually uh, who worked for us for a couple of years. And the first year he was there when we did the turkeys and he helped with the turkeys, he helped with plucking, he helped with dressing and then, you know, the whole way through the process and, all he would ever say as he was standing at the tables when they were gutting the turkeys was, I never realized there's so much work in turkeys. So, you know, I don't want to put people off, but you've got to, but it's again, like anything else in life. If you want to succeed in it, you're going to have to put the work in.
0: Mm-hmm. We, we did a 50, um, 50 turkeys three years ago and a, I was probably, I sowed the, saw the seed of the idea and my wife was quite keen and our sisters were keen to help when it came to, and my sister as well were keen to help with plucking and, you know, the whole process. And and we all, you know, it was a great process. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and certainly enjoyed the whole um, producing something and getting the reaction from the person you're selling to, yeah. And and getting the, the texts and Christmas Day and right. Boxing Day and things to say, you know, best turkey ever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And uh, but when it came to the following year, when it came to ordering turkeys, I I did I thought better approach my um plucking team. Yeah. Uh, that was plucking team and see um, you know, what their what their thoughts were. And we went from fifty to zero. Yeah. <laughs> so and it yeah. was basically it was based on Two of them had a baby. Um a lot, you know, life had changed quite a lot. Yeah. And and I, I hope at some point we go back to it. And we actually did yeah. a wee my father grows a bit of veg and things as well. So we did a wee box, a wee veg box and a wee cookie yeah, yeah. box. So, you know, we could yeah. do the whole Christmas dinner. But what was interesting was my my wife is very she's all about people and all very caring and kind. And obviously she's probably my carer as well. So that's that goes yeah. without saying. Yeah. But she <laughs> um she the bit she struggled with a wee bit was Christmas Day was thinking, yep. you know, our turkey, we had our turkey at um, about half past one. Yeah. And our, our turkey was really good. And from then, she worried about everyone else's turkey. Oh, <laughs> from, listen. Until Boxing Day.
1: <laughs> All right. Okay. So, so, I, I'm not going to lie. Um, Christmas, basically, nobody in our house speaks to me over that sort of two-week period. Because um, I, you know, may get slightly grumpy uh, coming in around Christmas because, one, we're so busy. and But one of the most satisfying feelings I have is, so we ship a lot of turkeys all over the country by courier. And one of the most satisfying things that I do every year is switch the computer on and look down the list of all the courier um, lines and you see delivered, 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 delivered and then you see the last, there's one you know, and we had our first occasion this year, I actually was speaking to the guy this week Um, uh, first occasion this year in London where a turkey didn't make it, the courier screwed up and the turkey didn't, it's the first time we ever had it, but it's the most satisfying feeling, but I totally get where your wife's coming from I worry, and I was talking to another pal of mine who has a farm shop locally, and we were talking about this recently, and he was saying that he gets to about the middle of January. And he says, I'm just so relieved when I I no can get to the middle of January. I've had nobody phone me up going, Your tur- the turkey was off. This is you know, this was wrong with it, that was wrong with it. I have had, you know, when we started, we had a few you know, people would ask for crowns and, um, you know, trying to work out what size... We don't do crowns anymore. I can't be bothered with it because it's nothing but hassle because people's... There are there are different cuts of a turkey and people's perception of what that cut of the turkey is to what we and what my butchers know that cut of a turkey is, it's two different things. So, like you know, a crown still has some bones in it. Uh, it's not just a breast, you know? So, like, that's... And and but there's that there is I totally get where your wife's coming from, um that worry that fear, you know I I love the texts I love the reviews we get on the turkeys, um but you've always got that wee niggling doubt in the back of your head is that some somebody somewhere's gonna come on saying, you know, uh, the turkey was rubbish, um you know, I'm touching a lot of wood just now that we haven't had that but do you know what I mean It's just I get that. I I
0: do worry about that too. I also remember my brother at the same time. And 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 she was fine with it. You know, it was just a, it was a bit of a bit of pressure and uh, my brother also, you know, we got to nighttime and you everybody, you know, please job done happy days and then my brother pointed out that diarrhea usually follows, you know, 24 <laughs> hours after. So there was there was still time, but no, we got through it well, thoroughly enjoyed it, learned a lot. And probably the thing the main thing that Stopped us going back into it was the time element and the fact that we've all got jobs as well. Yeah. So the and I, I imagine if we asked Michael Shannon when he was selling lots of grass seed, would he also do three hundred turkeys? No. Pretty sure the answer would be no. No,
1: no, 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 no. And and like the turkeys, the the, the turkey side of things, like it, there is no doubt. I get very stressed coming up to um the day that we do the dirty deed when we create the turkey angels. Um uh, when they all go up, you know, I, I get very stressed with that because you, you're relying on people turning up. You've got a squad of guys going to be turning up, and if one or two of them don't turn up, the other the rest of the squad are going to be fairly pissed off. Um you know, we have our own chiller here at the farm that we we the birds all go straight into. So um but then it's that and then then your big worry that period, your big worry is once they're all dead and you've got all the weights in them, then it's you know, because you've pre-sold most of these. So you've then got the stress of thinking, well, I need, you know, 50, 13 to 14 pounds, and I've only got 25, but I've got 25 of the heavier weights extra. Do you know what I mean? And it's trying to balance, match all the burdens up with the orders that you've got. And we are selling online, so when the ones that are sold online have already been paid for. Um, so it's trying to, and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be accused of doing someone, you know. Uh, so that's that's because you can't, maybe I'm just very bad at it, but you can't, um, you know, I don't, I can't sort of produce 200 birds at all the same weight or wall within, I did notice that people have sort of moved to kilos now, which gives them a lot more scope. We're still in pounds. So, you know, there's a lot of difference between a four kilo turkey and a five kilo turkey in my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, i don't know how people are doing that one but that's yeah
0: that's up to them so when you're buying these turkey poles what do you buy both sexes and different varieties. No. different
1: so we try so we try and buy all females um there will always be a few males uh within the sort of the group uh but but we're looking for but there are different strains so we do Norfolk Blacks, and Norfolk Blacks are always prone to being a relatively smallish bird. You know, you're going to get sort of that 10 to 14 pound sort of size. Um, but you then get these other birds, these big breasted birds that just come out at bigger weights, different strains. Uh, but, uh, and then as well as that, so there'll be some birds when they arrive here will be six weeks old, and some birds will be eight weeks old. But they all arrive here in the same day, so I think that gives us an expansion of sort of size as well. But sort of over the years, I've got to know the main sizes that we can sell and the main sizes we target to sell, Um, and then we'll sell a few of the bigger ones and a few of the smaller ones. Uh, This year, for some year, I don't I don't know what happened this year. Um, This year, we ended up with a lot. We ended up with quite a few really small ones, and. yeah I'm gonna to talk to the guy that we 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 got our birds from because I was quite disappointed at and I was talking to a few guys um locally, and they lost quite a few birds this year. I don't know whether it was the mild weather. uh, we lost more than we we wouldn't normally expect to lose you know I'm talking about three or four maybe at the most, but we got into the double figures of losses this year, and we can't with vets couldn't pinpoint it. Uh, nobody could pinpoint what it was and the only thing they came up with was it was particularly mild and maybe there was more just more sort of I don't know some sort of viruses going around that might have taken them
0: it's certainly the same as you know there was more pneumonia and cattle in the back end there was more you know that mild muggy moist you know it's perfect for growing whatever kills things
1: I had a guy who I'm friendly with who who rears a few and he rang me up one day and he said, "Uh, how are your birds getting on? I said, they're getting on fine. And you could tell that there was, during the conversation, you could tell that it was really something he would want to ask. And finally sort of said, you know, have you lost any? And I said, well, I have, and I've lost more than I would. And he went, thank God for that. He says, I've lost an awful lot. So he was having the same bother, but his vets, just like my vets, couldn't come up with an answer. And we even took some down to to uh, Dumfries to have them to have them um, post mortem, and they didn't come up with anything.
0: Mhm. Um, it's it's a tricky. They're a very fickle animal, aren't they? Particularly in that. They're a very
1: stupid animal. They're incredibly stupid. Like they, they're, they're like if you're going to do free range birds, you know, accept that they're going to break your heart trying to get them back into the shed at night. Um, You know, it's funny, different batches every year, but trying to get them back in the shed at night, they're just such a pain. And it's like, you know, herding cats. They're just so stupid. And, you know, the turkeys arrive here, as I said, at Christmas. They come in September. It's very much a Christmas thing. It's the start of Christmas. And Michelle, my wife, she's very into getting the kids over and now the grandkids over, see the turkeys, it's Christmas, it's the start of Christmas and no, all the rest. But well, by the time it gets to the thirteenth or fourteenth of December, there's so much pleasure in the final act because they're just so annoying by that stage you just think, oh, the oh no, I have anything but like, I I am really as you said, it's that taking them the whole way through to the final point where you actually take the, the produce that you've produced and hand it to someone. And then a few weeks later, you're talking to that same person and they go, that bird was amazing, you know, Obviously, the people that you talked to, said that was the best bird ever, just had never tasted one of mine, because that's exactly what people tell us, that's the best bird. Ours, actually, we go slightly further than that. Most people say to us, I never really used to like turkey until I had one of yours, but, you know, uh, you'll get to that stage sometime,
0: Robert. Once we can get past the baby stage, we'll get back into the, the poultry <laughs> stage. I think that'll be the, the plan. But certainly from our experience, you know, it was certainly a thing, you don't know whether you want to do this until you give it a go. And as you mentioned, Michael, there's, there's regulations, there's, there's rules that have to be followed to do this right. And it's it's right that they are there. There are food hygiene rules and, and registrations and certainly we can attach bits to the, the show notes here if, if somebody's interested in it. And it certainly it's a thing to have a crack at see see if it's an option see if it's something you want to grow into it's definitely not for everybody but it's absolutely for for some people where do you think michael where are you you're obviously your beef enterprise is pretty established and and you know matches the farm resources if you like where does so basically it's, it's unlikely to grow in the next Five ten years. What what about the turkey thing? Do you think you'll be doing more down the line, or do you think you want to do less and charge more, or what does the future look like? I
1: don't, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm, I'm, my concern with the turkeys going forward is, you know, the cost of living crisis is going to affect all of these things. You know, will people go for cheaper cuts? We're we're producing a premium product, um, a premium brand. We we don't skimp on the costs, and therefore we don't. we we have to charge a price for it. Um, We have very loyal customers. um, uh, We seem to pick up new customers every year that replace some that maybe fall by the wayside or for whatever reason. But there's no doubt that that's my biggest fear sort of going forward is, um, can people afford to have these big lavish meals? You know, there's no doubt. We've also got the big worry is, you know, more health scares. Bird flu, I, I find it stunning, actually, that some of our sales were affected by bird flu. So somebody actually told us that they weren't having turkey this year because they were scared of getting bird flu.
0: Did you manage to sell them some beef? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. They still, like, our sales um, this Christmas, were, were Christmas and New Year with the steak pies, were well up on last year. But we sold 15 less turkeys, right? So and 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 I'm concerned just going forward is, you know, um, the bird flu thing, I think the powers that be within the turkey world made a big thing about bird flu and about, you know, there was a crisis and all the rest. And I think they over-egged the pudding. You know, they, they scared the living day lights out of the general public. They either bought then frozen turkeys, early on because so they thought they weren't going to get a turkey. I don't know what they did, but but um, and it definitely affected the market. And I spoke to a few turkey guys, uh, small producers who had struggled to sell uh, their normal quantity purely because I think the general public had either bought beef or bought something else, bought an alternative product or had bought a frozen bird when the turkey scare because they didn't think they were going to get one. Um, and like you hear these stories where you know some of the supermarkets were selling turkeys for like a penny and things like this because there's so many left over because they, you know they scared the lemon day lights out of it. So, um, I, and and my other worry with the turkey, my other big worry with the turkey, is labor. Um, you know, I I do the, the physical thing, the feeding of them. I don't mind doing that, but the actual. Killing day and plucking day and dressing days and all the rest. I'm I personally am heavily involved in that, um, and I ain't getting any younger, um, and uh, I just worry about getting the staff to help with doing that sort of stuff. That that's a those are the two sort of fears: is the market and and staff.
0: And- And I think across all sectors that we deal with, all livestock sectors we deal with, that effectively, the the story is that labour has become the new dairy quota. And I think it's the same for turkeys, for beef, for everything, you know, getting people. And I just wish we could get into people that actually a day plucking turkeys is a long day. It's a hard day, but there's a big reward in it at the end. There's a good financial
1: reward. We, We pay quite well for plucking turkeys. Um, but we've, you know, we can, like, uh, we can mechanize certain other bits as well, which I would, I would look into. And I think that's probably the direction I would head in is probably more mechanization. Um, uh, I've got these, I've got a key little group of guys who come every year um, and they, they seem to enjoy it. And, you know, one of my own butchers, he, he variant it, uh, he's sort of my main man at it. And um, so, you know, maybe more mechanization and, you know, making life easier. It's that thing about time, (coughs) you know, we can, it's a highly labor intensive sort of process. But if we could maybe mechanize it a wee bit more, maybe then uh, the time aspect of it, it would make it more pleasurable for everybody, make it more enjoyable and uh, save time. And then we could do bigger numbers. But just
0: by using more machines. Yeah, no, interesting. And it's a, a, obviously a very much an evolving a enterprise in your business. When you mention time, it probably is the right time to probably draw things to a close. And certainly, we've had a a rumble through the turkey story. What I think would be important is we've mentioned damn delicious. We've mentioned the you sell beef, you do private kills, you do all kinds of services to farmers and also to consumers. How do we get in touch with you?
1: So you can either, well, on our online uh, www.damdelicious.co.uk a dam, D-A-M-N, delicious.co.uk, Um Or if anybody wants to talk any of his stuff, um, you know, you can get in touch with me through the website or, um, you know, uh, pop into the shop and have a chat. Um, I, I spend most of my time on the farm. Uh, I see my role as the farmer and uh, uh, put a... It's still quite a few hours every day put into the shop and the management sort of side of things, but I'm always floating about. I'm always somewhere. So, uh, yeah, glad to help anybody they can.
0: But uh, And probably yeah. importantly, whoever does just pop in is isn't popping in for five minutes because no matter whether it's a five minute question it will take a wee while <laughs> yeah well that's
1: nothing to do with the amount of time that I talk Robert is
0: it? <laughs> well <laughs> to be continued <laughs> uh, but no, Michael that's been great I've thoroughly enjoyed that a lot of good stuff in there and certainly wish you all the very best for your future endeavours and certainly the the point we were making the, the political points you know we, we now are at a stage where we have a really good story to tell and need to do that so I'm really pleased to hear your passion for that and I'm sure it's, it's echoed on many, many farms across the whole country so a big thank you for today that's been brilliant No problem, you're very welcome If you enjoyed listening to Stock Talk you may enjoy some of our other podcasts such as Crofting Matters which is a 12-part monthly show that discusses all things crofting in Scotland including livestock management You may also enjoy our new podcast Agriculture which tells the stories of some interesting and influential people in the agricultural industry. Just search Crofting Matters or Agriculture wherever you get your podcast from. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.